0: The title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. As I'm sure that uh, many of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. The other factors, or the seven factors, are mindfulness, investigation, energy or effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties. And these are faith, Effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, which, when fully developed, become the five uh, spiritual powers, as they're called. We'll begin this evening's discussion with three Pali words. Pali is the language that the Buddha taught in, as I think I mentioned this morning. And these three Pali words are sila, samadhi, and panya. And the three words translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind, and of practice as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight. These three form the basic branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist teaching and practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities, we could say, of the mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana or insight, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of. are called the three liberating insights, the first being that of impermanence, the word in Pali is anicca, the impermanence of all mental and physical phenomena. The second, a word you've probably heard, even if you're not that familiar with it, dukkha, which is really uh, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly and mental, mental and physical occurrences. And the third, the Pali word, is anatta, the impersonality, the impersonality of all mental and material phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that we gain over time that lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he often did he starts with the question, and then he goes on to answer his own question. So we'll go through a little bit of this. His question that he offers out is, if concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And then he answers his question. He said, the mind is developed. And then he asks another, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his own question, all lust is abandoned. And then he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And his response to his question is, wisdom is developed. And then he says, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And his response to that is, all ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha or samadhi meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue or ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila, of virtue, deepen and as they mature within us, we really come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment and ease on deepening levels and more profound in more profound ways and what brings suffering confusion what brings dis-ease. intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us is the recognition of and seeing are our self-identification in relationship to our own particular habits of attraction, which show up as greed, clinging, and attachment, and our particular habits of aversion, which show up as worry and resistance and anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits, if you will, these habits of mind, are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly life and worldly suffering. And the word for that in Pali is samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deeper and further purifying concentration, samadhi or samatha. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the true nature of things, recognizing what we could call ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from the liberation of the heart and mind. The true nature of things, what's often called ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, dogs, China, Barrie, Massachusetts, thoughts, feelings, snow, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, American Airlines, etc., etc., are understood or regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, as being without any separate, solid, sustaining self-identity. In order to see and know the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in concentration and mindfulness. In speaking to one of his chief disciples, whose name was Ananda, the Buddha again asks a question and then again proceeds to answer his question. He says, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And then he says, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their reward, as their purpose, Ananda. And freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose. Joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose. Rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose. Serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose. Pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose. Concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this. He said, It's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience. And often from some of our most difficult experiences. And sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes as well, of course, as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samadhi or samatha, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind that's attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering to, together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind that's ordinarily really quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and then learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't used up or being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. So in this light, the skill that's been developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of what in Pali is called raga, which is literally translated as unwholesome passion, and is often used synonymously with desire, craving, attachment, or clinging which is really the core cause of our own human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and its ability to protect the contents of the house from getting soaked with the analogy, of course, being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen or will be aware of a provocative sense input but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or to drench the mind with aversion. A similar image uh, often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or rolling off the feathers of a duck. In a treatise uh, called the Visuddhimagga, which is a really profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, there are a number of very graphic metaphors used to describe the process of the development and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share a couple of these with you. The first being, the bee follows up the scent of a flower and then dives toward the flower first stopping and buzzing above it getting to know it we could say before diving into it and then absorbing into it a metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration and another metaphor offered in this same treatise the vasudhi that i particularly relate to because of my own experience in making pottery, is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there, with a very strong and yet relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining, sustaining attention and energy totally undistracted, as the clay is centered on the wheel. And then the potter with the continuing focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention, the clay, the other hand is moving back and forth and up and down informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the mind The heart moving into deepening states of samadhi or samatha. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, this brings together and re stimulates itself again and again and again. Restimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of a concentrated mind. It feeds itself, we could say, strengthening its own ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, or concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to begin exploring and learning just a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration Calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. They can't grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So, an example. For instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath, at the nostrils, at your touching point, the anapana spot, and you're anxious or you're worried during the process. Well, what happens? Calm and joy will actually be prevented from arising. Why? Because worry enslaves us. It enslaves the mind and the heart. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought. One needs to be willing to not be seduced by thought. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. It's important, actually, to note here, and I think I mentioned it in the instructions this morning that it's not about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. And that's not what it's about. What is meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. In seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended. And as I said uh, at the beginning of the day, this is really the first and maybe the most uh, difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Because our mind can get lost, as we all know, in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions over and over again thinking that whatever it is is really, really important. During a three-month retreat uh, that I sat uh, a number of years ago that was devoted uh, to the development of concentration, I had a, a particular experience that I'd like to share with you. For the first week or so of this retreat, each day after lunch, I would... Uh, make myself a fancy cup of tea, taking two or three different loose teas and mixing them together in a tea ball, which seemed like a very important and seemingly necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. Towards the end of that first week, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter, that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. It had been there actually all along, uh, but I just hadn't uh, connected to it, hadn't seen it clearly, until that very moment. So the thought came up, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, the answer came no. No, it's not at all important, really. It's merely a habitual distraction. So that day, and then ongoing, I made a simple cup of tea with a tea bag and enjoyed it. It was just fine. What happened after this was what was really important quite spontaneously at times throughout the rest of the three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? Related to many different things, is this really important? It would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And I would just then simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and Aversion and lethargy and restlessness and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration is described as the purification of the mind. And as the Buddha said when he was doing his questioning and answering, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of of a calm and concentrated or of calm and concentration really seriously weakens what are called the hindrances those things that hinder concentration it considerably weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind as it develops and deepens and blossoms when calm joy tranquility blissful happiness peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration, when they clearly manifest, the hindrances, these unwholesome states of mind, are temporarily, temporarily, completely eliminated, as well as considerably weakened in the long run, in the long term particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically so, if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration. So, taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration, and that also hinder the unfolding of wisdom, the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, we could say aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object that I mentioned this morning, it's called vitaka, applied thought, it's sometimes uh, translated as. With the establishment of the mind, on the object in our case such as the sensations of the in-breath and the sensations of the outbreath, at the, the nostril area the spot or your touching point this eventually eliminates dullness sleepiness and stiffness the sustained application of the mind meaning a continuous and sustained attention on the object. Again, in our case, the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath, breath at the touching point. And in Pali, the word is vichara. This eliminates, eventually eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt. The concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, a bright happiness, an elation, in the mind, resulting from the development of the purity of the mind and heart. And in Pali the word is piti. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking of the object of attention. And again in our case here, the uh, breath, the sensations of the breath, this beautiful breath. And with the development of deepening concentration, Ill will is temporarily eliminated. It's inhibited. And going on, the deeply concentrated and mindful state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness, we could call it. And the Pali word for this is sukha. Which in its maturity is not actually pleasant bodily feeling but a blissful, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are temporarily inhibited or temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady and undistracted attention of a very one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration and the pali word for this is ikagata with this occurring uh, to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and ongoing it's happening for each of you right now as you're practicing as this develops it's the exp- this is uh, this one pointed concentration there's this experience of a clear and strong centeredness and balance and eventually equanimity. And during this time, when it's really perking along and developing deeply, the sensuous desire for anything at all is inhibited. It's put at bay, we could say. It's not in the field of our experience. We're absolutely fine with just the breath just the experience of equanimity itself. That's enough. As samadhi or concentration develops and moves along, and the states that corrupt the natural purity of the heart, the natural purity of the mind, when at least some of these imperfections these afflictive states, we could call them, have been clearly let go of, or at least temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. At that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And this is really a wonderful occurrence. When this confidence arises, the mind the heart often experience quite an inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha and connected to the Dharma, the teachings of the truth that the Buddha offered, and connected to the Sangha, the community of beings who have in the past and are currently, all of us right here, practicing and teaching the Dharma. And there's often an inspiration and appreciation to one's own particular teacher or the teacher that you're working with at the moment. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourself as purified or at least partially purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourself as at least partially liberated from unwholesome states, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of a balanced elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without, and this is a very important uh, aspect, without any attachment, without any personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become quite tranquil. And with the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental Disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are removed as tranquility matures. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the very serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. And when pleasure is felt, again very important, without any attachment, and this is not so easy, when we feel pleasure without any attachment, without any self-identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for a deepening or deeper concentration. And of course this whole process must be accompanied by a continuous and sustained mindful presence, very important mindfulness in this whole process. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration and on and on it goes. Consequently, At this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that has been developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of raga, as I mentioned earlier. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of every Buddhist tradition. And one important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes waft in on it from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. So in light of this, we might ask ourselves this question. Does the mind control you? Or do you control your mind? The nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types, or... Three levels, we could say, of concentration that can be developed and serve our insight practice. The first of these is what is called momentary concentration. And this is really the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, and another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. Really clearly so. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is absolutely essential for insight practice, for vipassana practice. The second type or level, we could say, of concentration is called excess concentration. And this is really a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or what is called jhana concentration and it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of very deep absorption concentration. Access concentration is often experienced as similar in intensity and depth as to the jhana or the absorption concentration but it's not an absorbed kind of concentration, access concentration. It doesn't stay, access concentration doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of every other object, as does the jhana concentration. With access concentration, the mind is very malleable, it's able to move from object to object to object even though it contains close to the same intensity as the deeply absorbed states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be really helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or the third level of concentration is called jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible, actually, for the mind to do anything else at that particular time. And with the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily, and temporarily is important, temporarily totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time the unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's really only through insight practice, it's really only through vipassana practice that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our insight practice, our vipassana practice, particularly the momentary concentration that I mentioned. Especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less and less attachment and identification, but rather with a very interested and investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration really takes quite a specific and concerted effort. And it's not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary at all for a potentially liberating vipassana or a potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to really wholeheartedly meet experience with what we can sometimes call no-self, no-me, no-I-am. While at the same time really being clearly present and mindfully aware, very mindfully aware of what's taking place. But it's not mine, it's not me. It's just a clear awareness of what's taking place. And also not making something out of the experience. No commentary, no pondering, no thinking about what's occurring and not making something out of the experience, but rather really receiving, sensing and seeing and knowing experience just as it is, however it is. In this slide, I'd like to... uh, share a simple and maybe potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it said that the bodhisattva, and I'll uh, break that word down and tell you what it means, some of you may not know. The word bodhi translates as awakening or enlightenment, and the word sata, or the other half of the word sata, is a being dedicated to, or having the strong intention to bodhi, the strong intention dedicated to awakening. It's said that the bodhisatta, which he was before he became a Buddha, and his name was Siddhartha Gautama, he asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment after he'd done these six years of extreme ascetic practices that didn't seem to be bringing the fruit that he was looking for? And in reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience uh, from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all of the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth. It was an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably and quietly under a very sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children can sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth, breaking open in even, wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly open soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong as well as the sharp cries and shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects the grubs, the worms, and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree open-heartedly experiencing the scene that was going on before him and in his mind, in his heart finding no resistance no tension no inner conflict nothing to add, nothing to take away No picking, no choosing. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and secluded from unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure and a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha could this be the path to enlightenment? And it said that following up on this memory from his childhood, the Bodhisatta became filled with energy and assurance that this was, in fact, a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation, and resolved then to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and actually a change in his relationship to suffering and in his relationship, his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified or banished or released or relinquished by creating hardship for oneself and then putting up with it. Or maybe just trying to live through them, Or maybe through stealing oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling or by trying very hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardships. And if you consider your own life, how many times in your own life, in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies or Various situations or activities, various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life. Maybe even extreme hardship or extreme austerity. And in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking as he did, that these fantasies or situations or activities or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, a sustaining happiness, and a sustaining ease into your life. Potentially a certain degree of mental strength may be gained, of course. But the light, so to say, at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can never really be seen or felt or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities. This would never really bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a heart, within a mind, That's secluded, free of mental and bodily hindrances, the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy and restlessness, greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence, and detachment, That it's not only okay, but that it's valuable and necessary. It's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along this path to liberation. And that, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed and clinging and fear and judgment and anger and confusion that in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, of a mind that's awakened, a heart, a mind that's liberated. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisatta came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and in his case, jhana, was a footstep on the path awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed it in a discourse to one of his students whose name was Sakaka, he said I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought this is the Buddha continuing I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, and third jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, as he called it, in the Buddha's words... But such pleasant feeling that arose, that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imper- imperturbability, meaning equanimity. He tells Sakaka that then he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one during that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha kind of wandered into, we could say. The world outside going on just as it is, Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No difference in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an unperturbed mind really isn't so easy to wander into for most of us, as we know. We so often have a mind made up, and often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good or what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have, what we must not have, in order to be happy, and even in order to just practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. And it keeps us in conflict. Keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility. Keeps us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting very directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents, is what we started with this evening. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and the practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha, and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life to the other side, to the side of peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind. The current of samadhi or samatha the development of concentration is beautiful, potentially healing and powerful in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dharma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used toward our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena. Parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we really recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality and awaken from the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are. More than 2,500 years later, after the story that I've just shared about the Buddha's life, took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gotama, to his diligent and powerful practice, here we are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift of clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest, and hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness, and patience, these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya, and without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and basic forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. And closing the talk this evening with a poem uh, by Mary Oliver who speaks of this evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to the evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet quite moving way. And this uh, poem is called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. Such singing in the wild branches is the name, as I said. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float... To be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising, and in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. it was the thrust for sh- the thrust, the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seems, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true, is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. let's sit quietly for just a moment together And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. No bell, it's too far away. I can't reach it. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.